By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we have a repeat guest of The Sweet Spot. We have Carl Morris. Carl, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. It's uh, very nice to see you both and, uh, and be back with you. We did an episode with you. It's been, I think it's been over a year. Really? Everything they said about life was true. Like, it just goes by so quickly. My kids are growing up too fast. Like I, everything seems to. I feel like we just had you on, but I did look it up. It was over a year ago. It feels to me like there was a collective time loss around COVID and the way the way yeah. the way, way we've reacted after that. Everything seems to compress together, and time just disappears. It, it is quite strange. Maybe we'll do an episode on that with a uh, a physicist at some point, Adam. So we did you and and your your partner Gary Nickel collaborated on on three awesome golf books, The Lost Art of Golf. And then the first episode we did with you, we talked about putting, the lost art of putting. And we got a tremendous response to that. So it probably took longer than I imagined, but we want to have you on to discuss the other book in the series, which is, I guess, a more generic approach to golf. The, the title is The Lost Art of Playing Golf. So that that's the topic of today's episode. We'll go, not everything in the book, we'll, we'll pick out some topics and, and tackle those. But just remind the listeners, you're a performance coach, just, just remind everyone who you are and, and what you do in the golf world and beyond. Yeah, I've been very lucky, John. I've managed to avoid working for a living for the past sort of 30 years or so and, and, and indulged <laughs> in uh, really what is, is a hobby and a passion. I spectacularly failed as a, as a player, went into coaching as a PGA professional and 
started to see patterns in terms of what I was passing on to other people that had happened to myself and my own game in the sense that I was passing on lots of technical information to people about the golf swing and sounding extremely clever and knowledgeable, but didn't see people improving too much. So I actually stepped away from the game for a couple of years and, and studied various things, you know, NLP, hypnosis, in a game, lots of different disciplines, and then came back and started to work as a performance coach and got very lucky in the early days, really. I worked with a couple of players who did okay and then worked with the players like Darren Clark and Lee Westwood, who, who did all right, Graham McDowell. And from, from there, just sort of 25, 30 years later, keep trying to ask some good questions. I don't think I've got all the answers, but I'm, I think I'm reasonable asking some some sensible questions about what works and what doesn't. Well, we love your, we feel like you're a a kindred spirit of our philosophy on golf. I just went back on your podcast, The Brain Booster, again, and had a fantastic conversation with you. So it's always a pleasure to talk to you just because I think your philosophy aligns with, with ours and what we talk about. So we talked about putting, and I think that helped a lot of people. So let's talk about golf in general. What was really the the driving force? Because you released these books in, in, what, like 2018, the first one? Is that correct? Yeah, around then. Yeah, absolutely. The putting was the first one, yeah. And then, then the lost art of playing golf was the second one, correct? Yeah, yeah. So what was what was the main reason you and Gary wanted to get these books out there? I think the key thing, John, was and, and the way both Gary and myself see this now is that if you're going to get better at golf, if you're going to improve, it really comes down, we think, to two straightforward things I won't say simple things but straightforward things in the sense that if you're going to get better at golf you need to develop some skills you need to understand impact factors you need to develop a, a repertoire of shots to get around the golf course which Adam and yourself I know that's something that you focus heavily on in terms of developing skills but then if you develop skills the the other part of the puzzle is then being able to access those skills when it matters most on the golf course we both felt that there was, just as there was a lot of complexity in the technical side of the game, we were seeing in the last 10 or 15 years an equal amount of complexity in the mental game. And people were getting almost lost in thinking about the thinking and very baffled about how they should go on the golf course and who they should be and all this kind of stuff. So we kind of tried to, to, to pare it down to, you know, you have your big three in terms of impact factors. But we kind of, this was something we put together about sort of six or seven years ago, three crucial keys in terms of the mental game. And we feel as though these three keys kind of simplify things. And in terms of the mental game, if you stay on track with these three elements, you're not going to go too far away. And and we really believe that if you if you focus on these, that you'll get closer to being able to access your capabilities. We we can't we can't give you anything that you haven't got. If you haven't got skill and you've got a great mind, you'll still hit loads of bad shots. But if you have developed skill and then you're keen on accessing those skills on the golf course, we, we believe that some of the sort of thoughts might uh, might open a few doors for you. Yeah, I, I love that word accessing skill because for a long time, I would work on the range and, and try to build skills and get better. But I think my mind didn't allow me to access it as often as I wanted. I was my own worst enemy on the course. So I do love that word because that's what makes golf so frustrating is that you can have the physical skills, but if you're working against yourself mentally on the course, you're just not 
letting them shine as much as you can. What are your big three? Let's go there. Yeah. Well, the, the, the big three would be intention, attention, and attitude. And we could look at that just on an individual shot, and then we can broaden it out. You can use those three in terms of a round of golf, and you can use it in terms of the whole way that you approach the game. But on an individual shot, if we start with intention, there was a great book written many years ago by a guy called Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talked about starting with the end in mind. Now, if we think about it, what are we actually trying to do when we get on a golf course? Even if we're trying to win a tournament, that tournament win is going to be made up of individual golf shots, clearly. So to have a really, really clear intention about what you're actually trying to do with the golf ball, as obvious as that sounds, I think a lot of people get out on the golf course and they've no real understanding about how to create that clarity of intention. Because as you guys have talked about many times before, we do know that the body will organize movement around a clear intention. If you give it a problem to solve, the body's pretty good at solving that problem if there's clarity to it. So one of the things that we we suggest people do is get really clear on what are the best ways that they as an individual can create this, this clarity of intention. And a big factor for us is that if you ask good questions, the brain seeks to solve those questions. So something as simple as asking yourself the question, what does a good shot look like here? All the sort of cliches about playing one shot at a time and staying in the moment and all that kind of stuff, that is actually brought to bear by asking that question, what does a good shot look like? Now, your personal answer to that might come in the way of an image. It might come in terms of a verbal description. But it's, it's really, and this is where we kind of work with players, it's really interesting to explore as an individual what actually really resonates with you to create that clarity clarity of intention. I'd be curious to hear, I don't know if you, if you can share this or not, but working with players like Darren Clark or Westwood or any of these other high-end players, how different does that intention look? For Lee Westwood is a legendary ball striker. Like, how is his intention different from someone else's? I'm just curious to hear like what what their focuses were. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, I'm not going to go into everybody individually of what they did, <laughs> but no question. You don't have to even name them, but just you could speak of them as golfer X or golfer Y. I'm just curious to hear how it how it differs. So, golfer X, for instance, shall we say, was really in a sort of visual, really clear visual image of the shot and he would play around with images like shot tracer and he'd play around with the colors of the shot starting off and the height and the trajectory and the apex of the flight and he found that actually that certain colors really helped him play certain shots so uh, you know for instance a fade might be a red color and a and a, and a draw might be a green or a blue or whatever it may be he got really into the visual aspect of it another player that i can think of the visual side really didn't work that well for him at all. He didn't he didn't resonate in any way, but he was much better with a really clear verbal description. You know, the ball's going to start off to the right of the trap. It's just going to turn over. It's going to roll out this way. So it's it's a kind of individual voyage of discovery to just find out what really works for you. And this is where the benefit of working with a good coach comes in. But you really will find that, you know, you can start to develop this repertoire of shots 
based on this clarity of intention and just exploring what could be possible with this. It's not something that we really work on. We get so involved in, in the swinging side of the club and what to do when we're actually making a movement that we don't actually create this preparation for what we're trying to get the body to do. People say that golf's not a reaction sport, but it is because you react to the images in your head before you actually step into the shot. So I just recommend everybody, especially at this time of year, to just just give yourself permission to just get a bit creative with your imagination. See what See what resonates for you. See what works for you in terms of creating this clarity of intention. Even on the mechanical level, I had a lesson the other day, as, as you're talking, all these images are coming up for me as well, that, you know, we're working on arc depth. So a player had a good low point position, but they were still struggling with thins and fats. And we looked at the GC quad information and we found that sometimes they were hitting low on the face, sometimes they were hitting high. So we chalked it up to this inconsistent arc depth. And so they were very analytical and they asked me, you know, what, what controls arc depth? mechanically and I knew this personality so I, I went down a, a little bit of a mechanical road and I said well you know we have to fo- we have to have certain knee flex we have to have certain spine flex arm flex scapula retraction protraction there are so many body pieces that if one of those just changes even by six millimeters you're going to hit an inch behind I said, but just try this for me a moment. I said, can you just thump the ground for me? And he made a swing and he thumped it. I said, can you now make a, make a swing where imagine you're in, in sand and you're just taking the top grains of sand and he made a swing and he just lightly brushed the grass. And I said, you just changed your arc depth by a few millimeters just through intention. And so, and then as we went along and did that, that was the exercise deeper or hit the ground harder versus, you know, just picking it off the surface. And we tried to calibrate it that way. And he came up with, he said it was more of a sound for him. So whereas I personally focus, focus it on it as a visual, I almost imagine the club as a plane landing on the ground. And I either try and crash land it or I try and just gently get the wheels to skim the, the tarmac. He focused more on the sound. He was like, oh, yeah, I want that boosh sound because he was, he was hitting a lot low on the face. So, and then other people, you know, they have more of a feel of squeezing the turf versus barely hitting the turf. So, yeah, this relates for me, at least in the mechanical sense, as well as creating an actual shot and focusing on the, on the outcome. It's brilliant to hear that, Adam. And you, you look back to what we did as kids we used our imagination when we were as kids. We imagined that we were trying to play like Sevi or Faldo or, or, or whoever and get out on the golf course and, and create all these shots. And as we get older, we tend to sort of lose that side of ourselves. We, we become so bound by analysis, and that's obviously got its part to play. But then you look at the experience that a lot of players have, even relatively high-handicap golfers. You get them on a golf course and in a certain situation where – the golf course itself creates a clear intention in the sense that you've got to knock it under a tree or you've got to hook it around a tree or you've got to produce a certain shot to get out of trouble. And it's, it's remarkable how effective even relatively inexperienced players can be as a result of that because the golf course itself has created such a clear intention. You know, what we talk about is don't wait for the golf course create the clear intention set about experimenting with and playing around with your imagination 
obviously we're not going to talk about putting in, in this because we've already been there before, but, you know, get on the green and, and again, just engage your imagination of what the ball needs to do to go in the hole. It is a different way to approach the game. And I, and I look at it this way and think you've got very little to lose by actually playing around with clear intention. Well, I think it relates. You, you had a chapter in the book that was kind of an open-ended question. Does the golf swing create the shot? Or does the shot create the swing? And, you know, you talk about how you can practice this way and play this way. I think that's related to what we're discussing. So let's talk about that a little bit is that, you know, we we try and Adam and mine, and of course your goal is to kind of get people out of swing jail and stop playing golf swing, so to speak, that that term's been around a lot and kind of play golf. Like, what does that mean to you when you when you wrote that chapter? Does the, does the swing create the shot or does the shot create the swing? It's a great question. It's a great question, and I'm not sure there's a definitive answer, and you get a bunch of coaches who would argue in one direction and a bunch of maybe other guys would go in another direction. But if you, if you think about it, in any given situation on the golf course, if you're looking at trying to produce a golf shot – you know, when you decide particularly what you're trying to do in terms of the golf ball, if you're trying to hit a draw or you're trying to hit a fade or hit it low or hit it high, your body will automatically organise movement around that. Classically, we've heard from the great players, you know, Sam Sneed was asked, what do you do when you're trying to hit a draw? Well, I just think draw. If What are you trying to do if you hit a fade? I'm just, I just think fade. On the other hand, you can go down the route of believing that you've got to get the swing just right before the shots come out. Now, our problem with that is when do you ever get finished with that? When do you ever get finished with the swing to then produce the shots? And I, Gary, really keen on this, Gary Nicola, co-author, he really believes that we should perhaps think more in the, in the coaching sphere of becoming, instead of swing coaches, we should become perhaps more shot coaches about the idea that you would go on the golf course with some shots that you've got and some shots that you've practiced and that you've worked on that you understand. Of course, you understand how you need to apply the club to the ball to produce those shots. But with the better players that we've worked with over the years, we've often said to them, and this has seemed to resonate with them, on any given day that you go to the golf course, you might not feel that you've actually got your golf swing because it's so variable in terms of how we feel each day. But on any given day, you will always have shots that you can hit. Now, those shots on a given day might not, not be particularly pretty, but they can get the job done for you. And, you know, another thing that we talk about, go to the golf course and rather than ask yourself, have I got my swing today? Ask yourself, what shots have I got today? What, what do I feel comfortable actually producing today with the feelings I've got today, the sensations I've got today? And I think when you start to think more about the shots as opposed to just the swing, you become more flexible as a golfer. You become more adaptable as a golfer. And for me, I know you guys have talked about this a lot, the holy grail of golf for many people seems to be this myth of consistency. The idea that at some point, somebody will sprinkle some gold dust on you and you'll eventually find the secret to the golf swing and you'll be consistent for the rest of your life when we actually know from experience that nobody in the history of the game has ever worked out to be consistent. Mo Norman didn't, Ben Hogan, they got pretty close. And our own personal experiences are always one that the game is so variable. But instead of consistency, 
if we aim at becoming adaptable golfers. If we have that as the, as the real goal in terms of improvement, that I become adaptable so that I get to the golf course on any given day I'm prepared to accept whatever I've got that day, both both technically and mentally, and then be able to adapt to the day with what I've got and get out there and get and get the job done. It's the irony that adaptability is actually a form of inconsistency, right? It's intentional, controlled inconsistency, the ability to hit it more right, more left, change the shot shape. Yeah, the irony that that actually makes you more consistent. Because, you know, as, as me and John talk about as well, not just changing shots, but changing intention. If we're hitting it left one day, well, we know how to open the face a little bit more. So we can actually, we don't have to suffer with that left shot. We can bring it back into play. If we're hitting a heel, say a shank for one day, well, we can hit it more off the toe of the club because we've trained that. Our ability to produce controlled inconsistency actually can make our bad days better and bring that back into, you know, just recalibrate it. So yeah, it's uh, people think of consistency as, I just got to do this one perfect thing over and over again. And it's not, it's much more about adaptability. And the other thing with that, Adam, as well, is that I think the myth that's sold to people is that somewhere along the line you can learn a technique that will protect you from the feeling of bad shots. They will protect you from that day going on the golf course when you don't know what the hell's going on. And we actually understand that that's never going to happen. But if you are adaptable, you are prepared for the chaos that the game throws at you. You're prepared for the fact that you you feel your swing feels out of sync today and you just can't seem to hit the club but you've got something to do to adapt as you say if you're hitting it off the toe can you move it towards the heel that that is genuine skill and as I saw certainly in my coaching days I saw so many people start to look much better in terms of how the swing was they, they looked better on video the, the, the aesthetics were better it was more pleasing to look at but they couldn't play that was my experience as a player I had a good-looking golf swing, but I couldn't play because I didn't realize at the time about developing skills. Yeah, it's, I mean, even as much as we talk about on the show, I'm just, the last, earlier this week, I played in the the last tournament of the year for, for us. And I made the cut, but on both days, I just had a disaster on the front nine. Just one of those moments where I'm like, ugh. You know, as much as I tell people about like I don't like giving up, like I I just I was tired. I'm getting over an illness. I'm like I just things were not going well. Was, driver didn't feel good. Nothing felt good. And then something clicked on the back nine on both days, and I kind of saved it. And I think I finished 19th, so I had a good result. But it just felt it was like it was one of those gritty, dirty performances. And I think that's what a lot of golfers and I'm still learning this myself as I gain experiences like those are the days that I think separate a lot of players and it's also no matter how much experience you get it's still jolting to go out there and have a 3 4 5 6 hole stretch maybe in the beginning or middle of your round where you're like I don't know what I'm doing right now like I got no clue what's going on I'm making I made a couple of doubles just Totally felt clueless. And then, you know, a few holes later, it just kind of calmed down and it comes back. It's just part fascinating and part maddening. As, as much as I've learned about this game, it still happens to me and it still blows my mind every time. Like you could just be staring into the mist and then you have to make some type of adjustment. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and that is a that's just part of this game. 
But that, John, ties in with this embracing the chaos, embracing the fact that the game every time that you go out will not be anything close most of the time to what you want it to be. Paradox of it is the more that you embrace the chaos, the more it tends to settle down. And I think yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think you can run a, a, a parallel with that with the mind as well. This is, again, infuriating, I think, from the mental side of the game that you get a lot of people selling this idea of mind control and you know being in the zone and this kind of stuff, as though there's a, a state that you can summon up that when you go on the golf course, you'll always have things under control. When What is the reality for all of us as human beings? We don't know what we're going to think next. I have not got a clue what the next thought is going to be in my head, and it comes up with the most random of shit most of the time. But then you start to begin to understand that to really make some breakthroughs, it's not about really positive thinking or controlling your thoughts. It's about having a different relationship with your thoughts, whereby there's, there's, a, there's a, a big difference between understanding that you have thoughts that will come along as opposed to deliberate thinking. Now, when, you, when you're okay with the fact that you get these random thoughts that will come in and you will feel uncomfortable, and you'll feel sensations in your body that you don't like, you can still get the job done with the process of intention and attention. You can still bring your intention to the shot feeling really bad or uncomfortable. You can then still put your attention on where you need it to be to actually produce the best shot possible. I had a great phrase the other day. It was a guy, and he was on my podcast, and he said that attention is the currency of performance. And I, and I couldn't agree more that to understand where your attention needs to be after you've created the intention, then you're getting much closer then to understanding your unique DNA as a golfer. And I talk about becoming an attention detective. And I know it's something we discussed, Adam, when you came on my podcast of what what do you understand is the best place for your attention to be during the act of swinging a golf club? Because... A swing is over in a split second, but for the mind, it's an eternity. You, you can have a lot of thoughts enter your head from the time that the club moves into the backswing to, to impact, as we all know. So understanding where to, I call it resting your attention, where to rest your attention is a real skill to look at. I might have mentioned this on another episode, but there was a recent clip I came across of with Novak Djokovic where he was just talking about his mental game. And again, it's it's nothing new or different, but to hear it from someone like him, who's probably going to go down as the greatest tennis player ever. And he essentially said earlier in his career, he felt like he needed to be perfect with his thoughts and positive, And he was just fighting against himself when he wasn't present and doubting himself. And then later in his career, he realizes like, you know what? I'm human. I can't control, as you said, what comes into my brain. And I've been honest with the crazy crap that comes into my head when I compete and play golf and have good results. It happens to everyone. But what he found was the key for him was that the ability to redirect those thoughts and have tools for that in the moment was what set what he believes separates him from his competition. And he mentioned conscious breathing and some other stuff. But he just did away with this notion that he has to be perfect with his thoughts and wonderfully present and all that stuff because it kind of sets you up to fail. If you believe that you're going to be on the golf course for four and a half or five hours feeling great about everything and being like, oh, this is wonderful, and then all of a sudden it's not, then it, it creates this kind of internal fight that doesn't have to be there. 
We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Sweet Spot listeners, I come to you today with a recommendation that will improve your golf life, a membership with the Golfer's Journal. The Golfer's Journal is a quarterly premium publication that sets the standard for quality in golf media. The magazine is beautiful, the photography is exceptional, and the storytelling covers the soul and spirit of the game in a way no other publication can match. The most recent edition always lives on our coffee table. I've been a subscriber since I first started years ago. But that's just the beginning. The Golfer's Journal is a golf community full of obsessive maniacs just like you and me. Their online community is buzzing 24-7, and you also get a ton of other benefits, including member discounts on everything from Bushnell rangefinders to Arcos to even AG1 supplements. And you're also going to get an annual gift for premium members and a full schedule of Broken Tea Society events at some of the world's best courses. Recently, this past summer, I competed in their Sleepy Hollow event, and it was awesome to meet so many great people in the community. So if you want to join, head to golfersjournal.com forward slash subscribe. Once again, that's golfersjournal.com forward slash subscribe and join me in the Broken Tea Society. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Just on that with one of the players that I work with who actually won the US Open a number of years ago. And he, he told a story that as he was as he was walking from the ninth green to the tenth tee on the Sunday afternoon, he glanced up at the leaderboard. And a, and a thought popped into his head, you've got a chance to win a major here. You know, that, that really useful thought <laughs> that his brain came up with. And he said he started to physically shake. He felt really uncomfortable. You know, we watch these guys on TV and it always makes me laugh about the commentators saying, you know, oh, this guy's clearly in the zone now and he's feeling, <laughs> you just think, this guy who you're talking about doesn't even know what he's thinking, let alone you who's actually <laughs> watching this stuff. But player in question there, he said that he, he realised that as he was he's feeling uncomfortable and his thoughts were scrambled, that he realised that what he could do on the back nine was resolve to ask a good question on every shot. 
So in, in the presence of all these chaotic thoughts that he was having, he had the presence of mind to say, okay, I know what I can do on each shot, which is ask a good question, what does a good shot look like, or whatever it was. And that allowed him to actually then bring his attention to that particular shot at hand. So I think hopefully for, for people listening, this idea that you don't have to be perfect, you don't have to think perfect thoughts, you don't have to try and be positive. That's one of the worst things that you can do is go out there pumping yourself up and trying to be positive because it's just all that does is just inflame the mind you just get more thoughts and we don't have to think positive about brushing our teeth or managing to put a fork into our mouth we just get on with those things you know so it's not so much about thinking positive it's about understanding a little bit more about where your attention is and as you say john being able to then bring it back to that task whatever the task is whatever the problem the golf course is asking of you golf course is constantly asking you to solve problems and the brain is really good at solving problems if it gets clarity on what those problems are in the book you you ask another question is science getting in the way of the game is there too much mental clutter and i don't get the sense that you're anti-technology you had a whole you had a whole chapter on TrackMan and, and how you know you believe in launch monitors and recommending people learn ball flight laws and stuff like that. And that's something we we kind of wrestle with this on the show as well because I'll, I'll get questions from people who say like, oh, you know, I I learned all this technology and all this stuff and it's it's cluttering my brain on the course and I'm like, no, that's the last thing I want. Like. I view like preparation and learning off the courses so that you could be more reactive and prepared on the course. So it's been four or five years since you published the book, but what are your current thoughts on like finding this balance between clarity and mental clutter when there's too much information to be learned? I'm not going to avoid the question, John. I will, I will get to it, but just to reinforce that some of my pals joke with me about, you know, if I, if I would, if I could still have the option of sending, uh, sending messages by carrier pigeon or, uh, or letters, I probably, I probably will, but I'm not a Luddite in the sense that, Launch monitors have made a huge difference to the quality of coaching. There's no question about that because launch monitors don't give an opinion. They give they give you facts about what's happening at the crucial moment in the golf swing, which is, which, which is impact. So the effective use of technology, I think, is, is incredibly important and, and, and a big assistance. But then to sort of caveat that, if I, if I was to look back on my coaching career, and I think back to the early days of just coaching the, the swing, I would say that the issue that I had 30 years ago was people would come to a golf lesson and they really didn't know an awful lot about the game. You know, you would kind of have to educate them a little bit about you know, impact and things like that and, and course management, etc. If I wind forward 30 years now, I, I get many clients and I ask them, amongst the other questions I'll ask, I'll have, what, what are you working on at the moment? And then when I ask that question, what are you working on at the moment? I hold my breath to wait for the answers to flood out. And it's like these days, it's just like this alphabet soup comes out of all of the things that they're working on and all of the things that they've heard about. And I just think, where the hell do I start with this? Where do I, where do I actually begin with all of this? And that's why I think, more recently, I, I'm on a I'm on a quest to to simplify the game as much as possible within the understanding of utilizing technology really well, and that's why I love 
I love your big three. I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show. We talked about this. You know, the big three in terms of you know strike location, face orientation, ground ground contact. I think that's just a great way for people to sort of corral all of the things that they could be thinking about in terms of the golf swing and hold it in place to three areas that if they could develop some skills in those areas, they're going to be better golfers. And in the same way of all the things that they could be thinking about in terms of the mental game, if they stuck with intention, attention and attitude, you kind of hold yourself in place and you can make some progress. It's amazing the resistance to it, though. I actually took those big three and simplified it into two things the other day. I said, you know, I used a kind of crosshair on the ground, and I said, well, if you hit the, the middle of this crosshair, or X, you'll take care of face strike as well as ground contact. So if you can hit that X and control the face direction, you, there's two things that will give you 95% of the outcomes that you're, you're after. And the, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people who, who like that kind of simplicity, but probably about 50% of people have a huge pushback to it. Well, what about this in the swing? What about that? You can't just do anything. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting how aggressive people get towards simplicity. It's funny, Adam, you mentioned that. I mean, I, I can uh, think back to an experience I was in China a few years ago doing some coaching with some young Chinese coaches over there and a guy who was out there as well at the same time was Rudy Duran, Tiger's first coach. A really, really, really wonderful guy and very humble and you know, one of the things that I remember asking him, I'm sure he, everybody who ever sits down with him asked him this asked this this same question. You must get absolutely bored of hearing it. You know, I said, How did you work with Tiger or what did you do with Tiger? And he looked at me and he said he said, the main thing that I did with him, he said, I didn't ruin him. And I, and I thought, wow, what, what, what an answer that was. And maybe, you know, the likes of Rudy Duran and, and coaches that have been around in the early days with players who become top players don't get enough credit. And he, and he talked about how they'd spent so much time out on the golf course and they'd spent so much time developing skills, short game skills and creativity. And he, t he talked about how great Tiger's imagination was. During that same session there with the, with the Chinese coaches, you can imagine there was a bit of a problem or I had a bit of a, an issue with, there was a language barrier. My Mandarin's not particularly extensive and that we were having some challenges. And I remember one of the, one of the exercises that we did and some of the coaches still, still ring me up to this day and, and say, they'll say, we're still joining the dots. And a little exercise that I did very simply with a, with a, a red marker pen was put a big red circle in the middle of the club face and a red circle on some golf balls and told these 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 kids to just swing it freely and join the dots and as, and as ridiculously simple as that sounds i can still remember the sound of the shots and i can still remember the ball flights that were coming out and these kids were having a having a ball they were just swinging it freely the brain had been given a problem to solve join the dots they were organizing around that 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 intention that, that had focused their attention and things like that. And, and, and I've played around with stuff like that over the years, even with some really good players. I can think of a player in Europe who won a tournament a couple of years ago and he, he, was, he was working on joining the dots. Now, at, at an advanced level, you, you can really play around with what you do with the dot on the club face and where you send it and how you orientate it and things like that. But the principle of a simple place for your attention to rest during the swing I think that is such an important message to keep getting to people.
I have a similar drill. I call it 3D aim spot. It's basically the same <laughs> drill, but I, I can vary that. I can say the spot is higher or lower. You know, if I need someone to dig deeper, I'll say, right, imagine that spot's lower. If I need them to be more on the toe, I'll say, imagine that spot is closer to you. If I need them to fix fat shots, we can raise the spot up or we can even push it forwards. So each person kind of plays around with the spot in space until they find out what they're actually doing and how what they need to think in order to hit their best shots, but understand that that spot might be kind of dynamic. So it's a great drill. I love how it's just very instinctive, works on that intention and... Uh, yeah, the movement can self-organize around it. I mean, sometimes, you, sometimes you'll see that the swing doesn't change a lot on video, but the shot quality is a hell of a lot better because we know the difference between a bad and a good swing could be six millimeters of arc depth or something like that. So yeah, it's a great drill. You started off the book with one of my favorite topics that I, I think people like overlook it. They don't think about it. And when you stop to, to do this thing, and practice it, it can open up a lot of doors in your golf game and life in general. Gratitude. So the first chapter in the book was the act of practicing gratitude in golf, because I think, well, I know, and everyone who plays the game knows this, is that it's very easy to take golf for granted. And it's very easy to have a bad relationship with golf and spend days or weeks on the course where you're like, I hate doing this. This sucks. And you almost have to flip the script on yourself and do some introspection to, to rewire your brain. But let's talk about gratitude for a while, because I think this is really, I don't know if it's everything, but it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of golf. If it's not everything, John, it's close. In the sense that, you know, I, I, I certainly fell into this trap big time with my own golf. And then I started to see it more and more with players that I work with. And I, and I would say it's pretty endemic now in the game. And it's what, what I call, I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I break 100. Or I'll be happy, or I'll be happy when, you know, qualify for the tour. I'll be, I'll be happy when I win a tournament. And then I'll be happy when I win a major. And, you know, I, I often tell a story about being in the company of a guy who'd won a major, and I've shared the story before, that you know you would you would think if you won a major, you would wake up every day of your life for an extended period. You'd draw the curtains back and you'd feel wonderful about everything. And we, we joke about it. And I saw this guy who'd, who'd, who'd won a major, and a couple of weeks later, we were seeing him and he walked into the apartment that he was in, and there was an atmosphere in the place, and and all of a sudden he's got life had presented him with problems. You know, he's he gonna maybe gonna have to move house and go to the States and, and all these things coming up. And I and I thought, my God, you know, you've just achieved the ultimate that any golfer can ever achieve. And that happiness has not even lasted a couple of weeks. And we fall into this trap of I'll be happy when. Yet when we actually turn it around and you start to look at, at gratitude, when you start to understand. I call it going first. If you're waiting for golf to make you feel happy, you'll be waiting most of the time. And the other thing that happens, when, when you're constantly waiting for golf to make you feel good, the golf course itself can start to occur to you or, or, or the, the, the environment of golf can occur to you as a place of threat. Because if, if you can only feel good about yourself and about the game when you've actually played well, the environment is going to be very threatening to you. And when you're at any time 
that a human being enters into an environment where there's a perception, and it is a perception, a perception of threat, that is going to affect the way that you move. Now, if you turn that on its head and say, okay, when I really start to realize this, that, I mean, Fred Shoemaker has had a huge influence on me and continues to do to this day. You know, Fred often says, you know, we're just, we're just hitting a piece of rubber around a field. What, what, what interpretation you put on that is actually up, up to you to decide that. Now, when you actually start to look at gratitude and think of all of the things that have to conspire for you to even play, you know, the fact that you can afford to play, the fact that you're healthy. You know, I know plenty of people who are injured and plenty of people who can't play anymore, and they would give anything for another round of golf. And as trite as it sounds in some ways, to really start to connect with what it, what is it about today that I could be grateful for? And I think we spend a lot of time stretching before a round of golf. We'll, we'll warm up, we'll hit shots. But I think one of the most useful things that you can ever do before you get out of the car is just go through a little ritual, maybe have a notebook with you where you ask yourself the question, what am I grateful for today? And just write some answers down. You know, and you might write down the same things over and over again, but you might you might include the fact that all the work that's gone into the golf course to produce this environment that you've got, all the things that have to conspire. I mean, when you write down what you're actually grateful for today, you've gone first. You've not waited for the game of golf to make you feel good. You've decided that you're going to go on the golf course feeling that before you start. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to play well. But my goodness, it provides a platform that you potentially allow your skills. You can access, I think you can access your skills far more from a place of gratitude than probably anything else. The, the science on it is so solid. Yeah, I mean, everything you just said was brilliantly, eloquently stated. Uh, I wish I could bottle all that up because it's so easy to conceptualize this in theory and think about it, but it, it's more of a, a habit, a conscious habit that you have to partake in, whether it's like you said, writing stuff down. I, I, I'm big on like mental snapshots. So whenever I'm playing, I like to just take a few moments where I'm walking in between shots, whatever it is, where I just kind of absorb what's going on and, and take some mental notes and, and being thankful for being out there because um, I played for a long time like you were saying, I was, I was waiting for golf to present me with results where I was like, okay, that's a good day. And that was all around score. It was like this binary thing. Did you shoot the score you're happy with? Uh, no, then you are angry and disappointed. And that was a waste of time. And that's a really crappy way to play the game. And I regret that. But as you said, I have found my best golf when I don't wait for the goals or the accolades, like I, I've won some things, but I really don't feel differently afterwards. It's more of the internal satisfaction of, of the chase or just playing. I don't know. It's, 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 it's hard to, I think everyone answers this question differently, but I just know that when you don't have it right, the game is, is a bit of a struggle and it's really a life thing too. It could be everything you said. It could be people are waiting for an amount of money to make, to make them happy, a certain size house, whatever it is in, in society. And it's difficult. I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. It, it's, I think it's one of the hardest like human emotions to wrap your head around. Yeah, it, it, it is, John. And, and I think you've also got to be careful with, with gratitude, you know, for anybody listening that you don't fall into what I call the false gratitude trap where 
you sort of think to yourself, oh, I'll give that gratitude stuff a try. I'll write out before I go out and play golf what I'm grateful for. But there's really a little voice inside of your head saying, I'm going to be grateful as long as it helps me play better. <laughs> yeah, it's all contingent on the score. <laughs> it's still, you know, it becomes another tip. Then it comes another. It becomes another sort of theory to try and play better. When actually, you know, we'll say to players, you're either all in or you're not. And 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 gratitude is about embracing, as we said before, the full range and chaos that the game will 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 throw at you. And I think gratitude also ties in with. The third point of the big three mentally, which is which is attitude, the the attitude that you bring to the game, and a, and, a, and a really close relation to gratitude that I think is so important for golfers to consider as being a, a key skill is the skill of acceptance, is the, is the is the willing acceptance of whatever results come out that the ball goes left, it goes right, it goes high, it goes low, and and again acceptance can be misconstrued and, and people can go down the wrong road with it and thinking that acceptance is is actually resignation or giving up and it's not we're not we're not saying you're going to be happy about a bad shot we're not going to say we're not saying you're going to grin if you knock it out of bounds and smile at your friends and say oh, I'm I'm glad to be alive we're not being nonsensical about this but acceptance is is that is the willingness to embrace the unpredictability of outcomes and I think when you when you're willing to accept the unpredictability of outcomes, you know Raymond Pryor has been on my show, and we've we just collaborated on a, on a program called Stable Confidence. And Raymond's pretty clear on this. I love the term stable confidence, and the idea that you can only really develop a stability in your confidence when you're willing to accept the the variety of outcomes that the game throws at you. If, if you are hoping to develop confidence through technique or, or swings or mental game or whatever it is, you, you'll never actually develop confidence because that, that those are all inherently unstable. Nobody's worked out how to eliminate poor shots, to repeat ourselves. The more that you can embrace that, the more you can embrace the chaos, the more you're willing to accept the variety of outcomes, the more that you stabilize because... You get ultimately to a point, I think, with this, that your brain says that the game of golf can't hurt me or doesn't hurt me in, in a deep way, in the sense that we've probably all experienced whereby I fell into the trap of believing that my value as a human being depended on what a golf ball did. If I shot a, if I shot a good score, I was a good person. If I shot a poor score, I was a poor person or a bad person. And that is too much pressure for anybody to maintain. And when we start, start to see through that illusion, we start to gain skills in gratitude and acceptance and things like that, then, then we can, I call it coming back home. You come back home where you, actually the game becomes a game again. And it's a very important game and it's a game that means an awful lot. But your value as a person cannot be dependent on what a golf ball does. When I was in university, applied golf management studies it was the second year and you actually came to present and uh that's i'm not saying the presentation wasn't good what i'm saying is the only thing i could remember from that presentation because it was like 25 years ago and it stuck with me is accept any outcome 
that that was huge that stuck with me for for life and that really changed my game because i was the golfer who was like i have to hit this perfectly every shot has to go straight i could even hit a fairway and be pissed off with myself <laughs> you know because oh i was a little out the heel or oh i missed 10 yards right that's how um much of a control freak i was and now i'm much more even if i hit it 30 yards right or left i'm not laughing i'm not smiling but i'm accepting of it and that that's really freeing when i'm standing over a golf ball and it also helps your strategy as well if you know that you can hit it 30 yards left and right you're going to pick different aim points you know there'll be times where i do aim at the right side of the fairway or even in the first cut of rough uh, because i'm more accepting that a bad outcome is going to happen you know it's it's inevitable so why why try and prevent it and put yourself in that protection mindset? Just uh, let it happen and allow for it mentally and strategically. I'm glad you remembered one thing, Adam, and most people who come to my... <laughs> it was 25 years ago, Carl. <laughs> but you're right, and I think the other thing that, that acceptance does is that it, it short-circuits the stories that we create after a golf ball has gone offline. Most of my time in the early days when I was playing, that a, a golf ball would go offline. And, and instead of being objective about that, that the face was open, the face was closed, I hit it high on the club, low on the club or whatever, what that bad shot did was was trigger stories. And I think, for again, for people listening, just think back to the rounds of golf that you've played this year and just think about how many times poor shots have triggered stories. And the stories start and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you hit a shot offline, and you're a bit fed up about that, and the story starts to elevate, and then five minutes later, you're questioning your validity to exist in the human race. You know? <laughs> I know what that feels like. You know, we've all, we've all been down that route. We've all, we've all gone down that route of, of being unwilling to accept. You know, you've put some such great stuff out there. I mean, I saw a post that you did not long ago, um, and correct me on this if I'm going in the wrong direction, but you showed images of the difference visually between a, a club face that was square and a club face that was one, two, three, four degrees open. And, it, and it's it's minuscule, isn't it? There's, there's, it's just tiny, tiny fractions between a decent shot and a shot that's gone 30 yards off to the right. But if we allow that inconsistency of the game to then create we allow us to create stories and the stories get bigger and bigger and bigger. The whole experience of the game gets diminished. And then our ability to recenter our attention on the next shot or to bring our attention back to the next shot and set a clear intention is massively impaired. So I think the lowest hanging fruit for most people listening is to, is to go to the third one of the big three and look at attitude. And, and, and ask yourself, could you develop or would you be interested in developing the skill of acceptance and working on that? Because you can have a conceptual understanding of it. I think most people listening to this podcast would have a conceptual understanding of it and think, well, that sounds a good idea. But there's a huge difference between a conceptual understanding and an embodied experience where you've actually developed this. Yeah, I I think one of the just I'm thinking through some of the things you said and and again the the thought of like waiting for golf to present you with something like a certain achievement and I think one of the greatest life lessons that golf has taught me is that I think a lot of golfers set expectations for themselves and they're number related, they're handicap goals, they could be club championship goals. 
And as you said, you think like, well, once I achieve that, I will feel so much greater. And then when the thing actually arrives, yes, it, it can be exciting, but you're still the same person. And I, I always think back to this experience I had that was quite profound for me. When I was a senior in college, I was 21 and I got an opportunity to intern at Google. Unfortunately, this was in 2004. And I was not awarded stock options, but I was there the day Google went public. Larry Page and Sergey Brin were literally sitting next to me in cubicles working. On the moment, they both became billionaires. And I remember looking over at them and I was like, these dudes don't care. That like I was like, I'm like, they, they literally just became two of the most powerful people on the planet, you know, monetarily, like. It was a big, big thing. Like the whole world was talking about it. And I happened to be sitting right next to them at that moment. Like literally had they come back from ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. And they didn't look any different. They just looked like two guys who were hunkered down on their laptops doing their work. And I remember it like had such an impact on me. I'm like, oh my God, I just like witnessed like one of the the biggest things in, in, in recent memory in the business world. And I don't know if these guys even care that much. They don't seem that much different. It was just an important lesson that like anyone would have killed to be in their position. But I don't think they were that different people. They they, they just kind of went on with their life and did what they did. Uh, I'm probably going off on a, on a tangent here. But I think that's a trap we can fall into with golf saying like once I get to X, I will become this person. I will be satisfied and I've achieved some of those accolades. And uh, to be quite honest with you, they're not like they're fun and they're great. But I think the internal satisfaction of playing and the and the quest to get better and the just the experience and embracing that joy of golf is the more powerful thing to me. You're so right, John, with that. And it's um, a sort of idea that I've shared with people for a long time. And, and this the idea that I don't have an issue with people setting goals and you know aiming aiming high set out to win majors if you like whatever whatever it is that you get excited about i think i think that's great but the only way if you are going to achieve any of the things that you think that you want the only way that you're actually going to do that is what i call accumulate good days wherever you are sat here today whatever you dream about in the future the only way that that's going to come together is if you accumulate enough good days and that simple question, what does a good day look like, is, is such a simple question, but most people have no idea how to answer it because they are always so far in the future dreaming of being somewhere else. You know, And when you come back to it, the only place that we can ever really be happy is, is we're, we're, we can only ever be in the present. We can only ever be here. So I think to get real clarity on what a good day looks like. So if you're a golfer, you're a tour player or whatever, to get a real understanding what a good day looks like and the actions that you're going to take, that is the very best contribution to whatever future you believe that you want. But the irony of it is, if you focus on accumulating a good day today, you can actually feel happy today. You can actually feel happy about what you've achieved today. You don't have to wait for some perceived time in the future. And I think, you know, you look at you look at people who see this and they find a way of being absorbed in things that they love doing right now. You know, the happiest people, as again, as obvious as it sounds, just love 
to develop their craft. They love to develop their skills as a chef or a, you know, you talked about the, the guys there at Google. They just love to solve problems on computers. Didn't they? they were absorbed in those problems. They, they weren't thinking about being the wealthiest people on earth. I'm sure that was nice when it happened, but that wasn't their driving force. It was what absorbed their attention right now. And I think, again, in this day and age, that we're giving so many messages about you should be this and you should be that and the future should look like this. And that's well and good to aim at things, but get really, really clear on what a good day looks like for you right now because then you don't have to wait for anything. Being on a golf course is a good day. <laughs> on the on the topic of uh, I'll be happy when there's a study done with in terms of finances and people who were earning 30,000 a year were asked how much do you need to be happy and have all your problems solved and they said three times as much 90,000 so then they went and asked people on 90,000 how much do you need to be happy and have all your problems solved three times as much. If I'm earning 270, 300,000, I'd be happy. And they kept on going up and they found that basically at whatever level you're at financially, currently, you needed three times more to be happy. So when you get there, obviously it doesn't solve your problems and not that it's not a good goal to shoot for and that certain problems aren't solved, but you know, you just have different problems. And it's the same in terms of handicap, right? If you get from a a 30 to a 15 handicap, what problem is solved? Well, you're not embarrassing yourself anymore. You're now, you've now made it as an average player, but there's new problems that come up. You know, I remember as I got down to scratch, the new problems that appeared were, well, I have more pressure on me now because I'm one of the best players at the club. Every time I come in, everybody's expecting me to shoot a good score. So yeah, you solve some problems as you get better, but new problems appear. I think about that a lot. I, I think about if I'm 40 now and I want to keep playing golf, hopefully until I'm 70, 80, 90 years old, there's no chance I'm going to be as good as I am at the game now when I'm that old. You know, Physically, I'm going to decline. Like It's just inevitable. And I actually think about that a lot because I, I hope I can have the same joy of playing then that I do now. So it, it's, it's a really hard thing to to balance, especially as someone who I'm inherently, I love chasing numericals and stuff like that. And I've had to trick myself not to, like, I don't set any, you know, people ask, I'm not a big goal setter with golf anymore. Like I don't set out to win things. I just do what I'm going to do and hopefully the results will follow. But I I, I often think about that because I do come across, I, I play with a lot of players who used to be great tournament players and they're kind of senior players now. And they're kind of stuck in between where it's like, well, I'm not as good as I was, therefore I can't be happy playing. And that that's sad to watch. And I, I can't I don't know how I'm going to feel in, in 25, 30 years if I have the opportunity to play. But I, I do think about that a lot. You see, I think again, and this was something that Fred taught me 20 odd years ago, that you know, that the goal of the game of golf is to shoot as low as you can. We we, we know that. But, but the purpose of the game is, is for you to decide and for you alone to decide. So I think, again, we've talked a lot about questions tonight, that, that that question, why do I play golf, is one worth really asking yourself and, and not, not taking the first answer always. You know, the first answer can often just be an advert of what you've heard from somebody else, you know, but to get real clarity on what is it that really resonates about, 
the experience of the game of golf for you personally. It's interesting. You, you get some people, they'll say, oh, you know, I, I, I really enjoy the social side of the game. And yet, and then they'll go out on the golf course on a Saturday afternoon, they'll three put the third green and then not speak to anybody for another two and a half hours. So, you know, as a, a, a meditation teacher of mine, a guy called Vin Harris said, that he said, it's really important to get clear on why you play the game of golf. But it's even more important to think about why you play golf when you play golf. I like that. I often forget that. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I I do it for the social part now, or at least that's the goal that I've decided to do it for. But yeah, I'll often call my playing partners nasty names <laughs> when I'm playing around. <laughs> well, I think you, you, you can do a lot of it. I mean, there there's, I love being around people. I love talking to people. So that that's a wonderful way to be out there. I mean, I, I often think of golf as like, my my craft my personal development thing like i'm fighting against myself and conquering my flaws and that's always been really awesome for me because i had temper issues impatience issues and playing golf and getting better at golf helped not solve those or eliminate them but i got better at them and that is why i love golf so much because it's kind of been like this personal development pursuit and that's that's fun to me but i'm not you know a lot of people aren't wired like me and there's there's other ways you can and some people just love to travel and then get into golf course architecture that type of thing so you know we often talk about this a lot on the show it's like there there's there so many different ways to enjoy it but if you don't have clarity on what your version of it and what your enjoyment of the game is going to be then you're going to be the, the person who might be antisocial and angry at themselves and i've been there trust me <laughs> the irony of it is john and, and this is this is not sort of doing the false bit again is that is that if you get real clarity on the important things for you about the experience of golf it might be something like being a great playing partner i i, I can think of a, a guy i worked with in the in the early days it kind of set me off on this career really and he was known in in the area that i i, I worked in at the time as, as the pro-am king and he used to just go and play in pro-ams and shoot ridiculous numbers all the time. He was shooting 62s and 63s on a regular basis. And then he'd go and play in four-round tournaments and really struggle. And I, and I said to him, I said, I said, what is it that you do in, in, in pro-ams? And he said, well, he said, first of all, he said, I'm quite unusual in, in pro-ams because he said, unlike a lot of other pros, he said, I genuinely enjoy playing in a pro-am. <laughs> yeah, most of them hated it. Most of them hated it, yeah. And, and I said, well, what do you do in, in the pro-am? He said, he said, I know, and this was laughable, he said, he said, I know it's not the right thing to do. He said, but I seem to in a pro-am and I just really focus on everybody else's golf. I really try and help everybody else's game. And I'm, I'm going over and helping Fred over there. And I'll go and help Bert over in, in, in over there. And he said, I just tend, then to just tend to just hit my shot and, and off we go. And I said, well, what do you do in a tournament? He said, oh, in a tournament, I really concentrate. <laughs> you know, and, and he, he kind of then we, st we, we started talking about this, that what, what, he was, what he was clearly doing in a pro-am, the whole experience was lighter. He was he was he was less selfish and more selfless. These things that we're talking about here, getting real clarity on what is important for you as a golfer, can actually provide the foundation for you to release your skills, to actually, to actually, as we said at the beginning, to access your skills through the clarity of what the game means for you and go first. 
again, as we said, go first, be in that state of mind that you're going to enjoy this experience for its, for the whole experience, not just for the number on a scorecard. But by doing that, don't think that's robbing you of the chance of low scores. It's probably increasing the likelihood of good scores. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, one of the biggest paradoxes because I, when I first took up the game, I thought I had to be super serious and concentrating as hard as possible, play my best, and I would just be a jerk because I was so serious about the whole thing and get angry at myself. And the more like, you know, I think it's a common theme of what we've been talking about. The more you squeeze, the more this game squeezes back at you. And the more you give up control, like the better you can play and the happier you can be. So it is fascinating. One one final thing that this definitely I know came up in our putting episode, but I think it's worth bringing up again because it was mentioned in, in the second book. It's the way we talk to ourselves or the internal dialogue or what we believe about ourselves on the golf course often dictates how we play. Like I'm thinking to, I know a great golfer who had asked, you know, possibility of playing professionally and did it for a long time, but he just believes he's a horrible putter and he'll tell everyone around him how bad of a putter he is. And that was probably what did him in, in his professional career. Or I, at the moment will tell anyone (laughs) how much I'm struggling with my greenside wedges and I'm going to take ownership over this and I'm going to get instruction and, and, and take it head on like I have in other parts of the game. But that's a story I've been telling myself for the last few years and it's it's not been pleasant for me. So I love this concept. So let's kind of wrap up the show with this is that the stories we tell ourselves and how powerful they are. I think improving your kind of self-talk to yourself Again, is one of those things, John, that everybody would engage with the idea of it. That that's a good thing to do, but to actually get them to change that behaviour is very difficult. And I find that metaphors work really well with this. And one of the most powerful metaphors is again, Vin Harris taught me this: is the idea of the second arrow, in the sense that when you go and play golf you don't fire the second arrow. And what that means is that the first arrow will come along, whether we like it or not. The first arrow is the missed putt. The first arrow is the ball out of bounds. The first arrow is that you you, you top, top a tee shot. Stuff will happen. The first arrow will come along. You'll be unfortunate with the bounce. You've hit a good shot and it goes through the back of the green. The wind gets up, whatever. The first arrow will come along. You don't have any choice with the first arrow, but the second arrow is your choice. You get to fire or not the second arrow. And the second arrow is your interpretation of what's just happened and the story that you create about it. And it's a really nice metaphor that, and a lot of people have found this useful, that when SH1T comes along, that's the first arrow. Now I have a choice whether I pull the other arrow out of the quiver and fire it into myself. And I think as the Buddhist would say, that's suffering. It's not, it's not the actual situation. It's, the, it's not the outcome of the shot. It's our interpretation and the story that we tell ourselves about that. So that, I think, for everybody listening is potentially a useful one. The next time that you play golf, just go out there, realise that the first arrow will come along on a regular basis through most of the round, but just observe yourself and see how many times that you fire the second arrow during the next round of golf in terms of your interpretation of what's just happened. 
I'm a pretty good example of that. If you watch me play, you'd think I'm having a horrible time out there because every time I hit a bad <laughs> shot, I'm cursing like a sailor. But internally, very quickly, my brain just goes, yeah, it's okay. Like I'll blast one left. I got you, idiot. But then internally, I'm like, ah, oh, it's just club face was closed a couple of degrees. You'll deal with it. I do occasionally fire the second arrow, but uh, it's it's very rare. You know, the outward perception is uh, is very different to what's happening internally for me. Just on that, Adam, it's a really great point. The second arrow isn't the initial reaction because this the sec you know, the initial reaction when you've hit a bad shot, we're gonna curse we're going to feel you know there's going to be that visceral reaction to what the golf ball does initially the second arrow is the time after that is the story that you then create about what's just happened so i wouldn't want anybody to listen to this and think that you've got to try and go around a golf course in a buddha-like state where you don't react to anything because the, the only thing i'll promise that you will happen as a result of trying to do that is that there will be a, an explosion at some point during the round and it will be unpleasant when it comes along so we're not trying to resist that initial reaction it's the firing of the second arrow, which is the creation of the story about the outcome that you've just experienced. Yeah, I got that. I'm firing first arrows <laughs> all the time. Every single shot is just that second arrow. It, it comes across a couple of times around, but it's, it's rare where, you know, that bad story will come up inside me. Well, I think it goes back to that initial point we were talking about Djokovic is that if you are denying your human reaction to things that happen on the course... I curse, I get angry sometimes too. And, and the two golfers that I've always admired just watching, um, again, I can't measure mental game, but two golfers who I felt who are always really good at this are Jordan Spieth and Tiger Woods. Because if you watch them play, I mean, Tiger cursed like how I mean, many times a gymnast have to be like, apologies to the viewers. And I'm not condoning Tiger's temper, but he's considered one of the, the the strongest mental athletes ever. And and he was so good at, he would release the pressure of the balloon. It happened. He would lose his temper, but man, was he focused on the next one. Even Spieth, like Spieth, if you had the microphone on him during his prime, like he'd be saying all types of ridiculous stuff to himself. But I know you could see the focus on the next shot. He put it behind him and he was able to move past it. So it didn't linger. And there's, I'm sure, endless examples of this at the high levels of golf and other sports, but it's a fine line because golf makes it very easy to have emotional reactions. And I don't want people like cursing every single shot, but if it happens a few times around, like whatever, it's okay. I mean, there's a balance to it. You know, I think you, Tiger's a great example there. He, he had an initial reaction, but I'm sure he didn't fire the second arrow in the sense that he didn't create a story about his capabilities relative to an outcome he, he the story that he did create was that one of what, what the possibility of recovery the possibility of holding that put you know i think tyrrell hatton's a good example everybody gives him a <laughs> yeah he's yeah, you know, oh my god <laughs> no tyrrell i've not worked with him but he seems to be somebody who does release the the pressure valve but you know the the quality of golf that he plays after some setbacks i would suggest he actually doesn't fire the second arrow he actually as a release and then he gets on with the recovery and yeah he's i've i've watched him quite a bit and yeah he's he's probably the most extreme example in pro golf he's one of the best players in the world and look would i tell people like oh go and play like Terrell? no i don't i don't think most players could 
play like that also because they just they don't have his skill either like you know the, the the thing that separates a golfer at that level or even the scratch golfers is that their skill can overwhelm where they they're going to hit i always say the best golfers i watch or the transition in my game is they don't hit two bad shots in a row and that's a lot has to do with skill and a lot has to do with you know the mental fortitude and belief but yeah watching him is interesting because he he seems to like that's just his personality. He loves to beat the crap out of himself and tell everyone how crappy he is or what a horrible shot he hits. And then he goes and does something incredible. It's uh, it's kind of bizarre to watch, but he just does it. Yeah, and, and I think that's as we were saying before about there can be the initial reaction, but then it's the it's this skill of acceptance of that reaction and then moving on to you know create the next. To think think about it this way that if you develop the skills of some of the things that we've talked about here, you don't get what I call contamination in the sense that, you know, every every individual shot requires that clear intention that we started to talk about at the beginning. But if you're if you fire the second arrow, you will contaminate this shot with the residue of the previous shot. Great players are able to, you know, Susie Meyer's a great phrase that she talks about is point A point a golf the idea that this particular shot here that i've got now has got no past no future it's just it's just a problem to solve right now in this moment it's the cliche of one shot at a time but all these cliches have a ring of truth to them that when we understand these skills to develop we get a little bit better at being able to do that it's the only way to play if you want to get better in my it it just there's 5,000 different ways to say this. And I love all the metaphors and platitudes as much as everyone else. And some seem to resonate with people and some others, you know, are different, but that's a lot of the game. It's just like hit the shot, absorb what happened and go on to the next one and do it all over again and, and try and do your best to put it, put that behind you or your fears of the shots that are still haven't been hit yet. You know, we live in the past and the future on the course. Sometimes that's the game. And you know, that there's no other way to play it well, in my opinion, but it's just hard to do that all the time and you can't be perfect at it. Again, Fred said to me years ago, Fred Shoemaker, he said, the bravest thing that a golfer can ever do is stay open to the possible. The reality of it is, and, and talk about stories here, if you ask yourself the question, is it possible that I could hold this putt? Well, the answer is Yes unless you create a story that counters that possibility. Is it possible I could hit this fairway? Is it possible I could hit this on the green? It is possible. It doesn't mean to say it's going to happen, but most people, what they end up doing as a result of firing the second arrow and creating stories, they close down, they shut down the possible. So to have the quest of your first possible is on the first tee and you only run out of possibility when you hold the last one on the 18th, unless you decide otherwise, unless you create a story counter to the possible. Yeah, for me as a junior, it was almost like every bad shot, I would attach a ball and chain to myself and then you're dragging it around the course for the entire time and then you'd add another one and another one and by the end of the the round, you'd be mentally exhausted and all those ball and chains would just you know, affect your performance as well. Well, it's crazy what we do to ourselves in this game that we call a hobby. (laughs) I view it as this is the best part of the game to me is because as much as I talk about it and try and help golfers with it, like I'm still struggling with this myself every time I tee it up, especially in competition. And I'm never going to figure it out. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) I love that challenge. And I think it's interesting to me 
and I that I, I guess that's the way I've had to frame it rather than the opposite, which is like letting it bring me down. And it does at times. Like I will fully admit there's there's days after I play in a tournament where I don't play well. And like, yeah, I I feel a little bit bad about myself, but you just have to let it go and don't let it hopefully change my identity or what I think about myself as a person because I've been down that road too and it sucks. And that's yeah, it, it's it's that to me is like one of the more fascinating parts of the game. And it's just something like we always have to be thinking about analyzing and keeping a tab on because it's easy to get into ruts, not enjoy it. And and sometimes it's, it's nice to take some time away. I don't actually hate off seasons too much now because I don't mind not playing for four or eight weeks. Sometimes I think my brain needs like to refresh sometimes and just like let it all flush out. And then be excited to play when 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 the weather comes back again. <laughs> well, the, the deep sea divers give us a hint, don't they? If they've if they've been down at the bottom of the ocean under extreme pressure, they they take some time to decompress before they go back before <laughs> they go back again. And I think you know just to reinforce the point that you've just made there. And I think for everybody looking to get better at this game is to see that working on this side of the game, working on your attitude, if you like, and your approach and your philosophy to the game. It's not its not something that you just work on for a little bit and get it. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment that you start and it's a, it's a lifetime's quest to get better at some of these things. And I think, you know, just as it's important to get feedback from a good coach like Adam and yourself, that I think getting feedback from somebody that you can work with as a, as a kind of neutral sounding board, really. I think that's one of the values of good coaching, whether it's the mental or the physical side of the game, is to be, be able to have somebody that you can create some accountability with, but give you some accurate, neutral feedback. Yeah, I mean, that that is the essence of coaching. Like you said, a, a neutral person in your life who can kind of look at things from the 40,000 feet above, because it's hard to have that perspective when you're playing or even, you know, in the heat of the moment. Yeah, that's... That's coaching. That that's why it's so helpful to have that independent resource, so to speak. Well, golf is always teaching us as well. I mean, golf is a lesson in life, and I I wrote a little note down about developing juniors because I know there's a big, whether it's a new thing or not. I'm sure it's been going on for many years since Tiger, at least. But you know, there are lots of parents who are very, very. My kid needs to be successful. You know, they need to shoot a certain score they need to be getting into this tournament they need to be getting into that tour they need to be getting into college you know there's a lot of pressure on these kids and you know the chance of success for a kid is very very small i mean what is it one in a million maybe maybe smaller than that so you know a guy i speak to brendan ryan will have him on the podcast at some point he's big on developing juniors more as a person than the, the player, you know, so doing tasks and things that develop them so that at the very least, they're always going to be successful because they come out of it as a better person. They're more patient, they're more understanding, they're more accepting, they have growth, they know how to grow as people rather than basing it because you, you don't want a, a horrible human who's good at golf. Really, that's not that's not success in my eyes. Really, it's much better to have a a well-rounded human with lots of life skills who shoots seventy-five. Didn't make it on tour because I mean, I'm sure you know there's lots of tour players who aren't happy with their lives. And success really is happiness, right? I think it comes back to what we said earlier on about the accumulating good days. If if I, if I were to give a message to, to parents listening to this, that not that I'm qualified to do that, but just is my take on it, that 
the best way to give your chance your your child the chance to become the best possible player is is not to be constantly in the future worrying about whether they're going to qualify for this team or whether they're going to get is just to get really really good support that daughter or son in really getting good at enjoying and appreciating today and what they're doing today because if they do that they will turn out the best version of themselves as a golfer and as you said and probably more more importantly as a person indeed well carl we could talk your head off for many many hours and we're definitely gonna do this again but i think there's a good good place to wrap up our conversation where can everyone, you have a bunch of resources online. You have the Lost Art of Golf site, you have Mind Factor. Tell, tell us where everyone can, first off, where can everyone find the books? There's three of them. There's the Lost Art of the Short Game as well. Best place to, to get the books is just on Amazon, really, John. Lost Art of Putting, Lost Art of the Short Game, Lost Art of Playing Golf. And there's been some issues about getting books over to the States, but that's hopefully going to be resolved in terms of the hardback, but the, kin- the Kindle's definitely available. And then, then my my stuff. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I, I alluded to the fact that I'm a luddite or a semi luddite before. I'm not fantastic on social media, unfortunately. But that's I probably did, a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm. <laughs> you know, I, I I sort of keep resisting. I'm not. I'm just not interested in in you know what somebody's wearing on a Friday night when they go out. <laughs> 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 I'm about that. Maybe that's just a sad reflection of me. But I do have a website, and that's the, the mindfactor.com where. The the main thing that we've done over the past sort of seventeen years, it's our seventeenth year now, is for coaches. We actually run a certification each year live in in Manchester. We only do the live version once a year, and it kind of sells out every year. We're, we're about to do the, the the one this time, but there's also an, an online version as well for any coaches who want to become a certified Mind Factor coach and we, we get together regularly and do Zoom calls and support like that. So that might be of interest to some of the people who uh, who are listening. And your awesome podcast. Yeah, you've yeah, as you said, you've you've been on it a couple of times and Adam's been on it and it's uh, the brain booster is out every Friday and it's it's just like this. It's fun just to uh, to catch up with people who are like minded and uh, share, share some ideas. I'm 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 always surprised when certain people agree to come on again. So it's nice to uh, <laughs> nice to uh, nice to keep well, doing that. Yeah, we love yeah. talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on. We will definitely have you on again, Adam. Where can everyone find your stuff? AdamYoungGolf.com. John, where can people find your stuff? You can check out the four foundations of golf. And uh, I hope to have like a series. I'm trying to build a foundation series like you guys have done with the Lost Out of Golf. I'm inspired. You guys wrote three books. I'm going to, I want to have a nice little neat. You guys have this awesome, you had sent it to me. They have a great three hardcover set comes in a nice box. I hope to do that one day too, but I'm, I'm working on the second one. So yeah, check out the four foundations of golf. Thanks for everyone's support and their feedback. And we will see you next time with a new episode.